Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, we had another timely conversation today. Uh, We're here in January of 2022 talking about nutrients. Yeah, and that is kind of a hot button issue right now. Consumers, all of us go to the grocery store and we're seeing some cases we're not able to buy the things we want. They're not there. The things that are there, the prices are high. Inflation's been really high over the past several months. Uh, That's happening in the ag industry too, especially when we talk about fertilizer prices. So the cost of nitrogen, the cost of phosphorus, the cost of the other nutrients that the farmers put on their crops to make the plants grow has really gone through the roof in the past three or four months. Absolutely, Jason. So today's guest was Megan Dwyer, who is the Nutrient Loss Reduction Manager for the Illinois Corn Growers Association. And I think Megan provided a lot of timely information that will help farmers across the Midwest to provide some actionable items on helping to preserve some of the the high inputs such as nitrogen and other nutrients. Yeah, absolutely. And for those that aren't involved in agriculture, it'll give a little glimpse of some of the, you know, help help them understand, peel back the curtain a little bit and understand some of the decisions that farmers make. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Megan. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. To kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to be talking with you guys today. Uh, So Megan DeWire, I'm the Nutrient Loss Reduction Manager for the Illinois Corn Growers Association. Uh, Basically, that means I work with a lot of things involving water quality, sustainability, stewardship, and nutrient loss uh, for Illinois corn farmers. My background, I'm actually a fourth-generation farmer, and we farm up in Henry County, so northwest Illinois, in one of the priority nitrate watersheds, actually. We raise corn, soybeans, cattle, and kids. Uh, My husband and I have four kids (laughs) under the age of nine. Uh, I'm an Iowa State grad, uh, kind of a precision agronomist by trade, and just love working in this space and and trying to help problem solve and see what we can do to address the nutrient loss situation. Tell us a little bit about the corn growers. Yeah, so Corn Growers is actually made up of two groups, the Illinois Corn Marketing Board, which is your checkoff dollars. So when corn is sold in the state, um, a portion of that comes back to work on research, outreach, education. And then there's the Corn Growers, which is the membership dues paying membership organization side. So my position works for both of those boards uh, collectively. And, and that's the, you know, the lobbying arm, as well as, like I said, the outreach and education side. And when you talk about a checkoff program, that's a certain amount of every bushel that farmers sell that goes to the organization. Yeah, absolutely. It's their way. You know, we know that it's so important to advocate and and have a voice in this space. And so not every farmer is set up to be that advocate for themselves. And so using a portion of that that bushel that's sold in the state uh, allows us to collectively be that voice and help and, and promote their product and ensure that they're getting a fair price when they sell that corn. Well, Megan, we wanted to talk a little bit about fertility today, so I wondered if you could briefly describe the fertility needs of crops. Yeah, so, you know, I think about, well, we had the food pyramid, which now we have the food plate, uh, but our corn and soybeans are the same way. They need a balanced diet. They need that nutrition in order to be uh, the most productive that they can. And so just like we put our fruits and vegetables and proteins on our plate, uh, our crops have macro and micronutrients that they need. And as we think about nutrient loss, uh, two of those macronutrients, specifically phosphorus and nitrogen, can be a concern and an issue when we're talking water quality. And so when we're, you know, working with farmers or policy, uh, we really tend to focus on those those two nutrients right there that take up the bulk of that food plate. 
Do you have any specific metrics around how big that portion is of the food plate for maybe for our non-farmer listeners? Yeah, and so, you know, when we're talking the fertility piece, so needing to feed that crop, um, you know, data from Purdue recently would say in this year, if we get into talking about the cost of these these inputs uh, is a very different story this year than it was last year, even the last five years. But for every bushel that a a farmer produces. Right now, it's taking about a dollar forty-nine um, of that bushels going to the fertilizer cost. Uh, whereas, you know, between 2016 and 2020, that might have been seventy cents. And so, we're seeing a significant increase in that cost and reducing that profitability for a farmer. Wow, it's a significant price jump. It's crazy. And, you know, there's a lot of factors that have gotten us to this point. Um, you know, some concerns, and you might have heard about Mosaic, which is a primary phosphorus um, source for farmers. And, you know, they starting actually in early 2020 had wanted to put different tariffs on imported phosphorus products. And that was actually approved and allowed to happen. Um, so that's one component to this. And that's one way where our commodity groups are so important. Uh, they're out there trying to educate and, and make a difference on this. Um, you know, we've, we're working together collectively, corn, soy, wheat, uh, your farm bureaus, uh, to try and figure out what can we do? Can we overturn that rule? Um, can we find ways to encourage our, our large uh, market share companies like Mosaic um, to, to maybe think about the farmer a little bit more than their, their shareholders. We don't need to get too deep into politics <laughs> here, but I would imagine that the average representative or senator, even the ones that are from farm states, probably aren't often real knowledgeable about what goes on on the farm. They're not, and it, it's tough. You know, I think that Recently, I'd say most people are at least four generations removed from the farm. And so as long as the grocery shelves are stocked, it's it's really easy not to think about what went into that and, and all the components. And today, whether we're talking the farmer or a general consumer, we're in a global society. Um, it's not that you're you know necessarily growing the food that you're eating down the street. Uh, it could be coming from all over the world and our inputs to, to provide and, and make that happen are, are doing the same thing. As we sit here today in January 2022, we're kind of learning about those uh, supply chains and how, you know, there's a little stress at the grocery store. Absolutely. Like I said, I've got four kids. Um, so going to the grocery store is a pretty big uh, part of my budget. And, you know, just recently I was in there and couldn't believe the produce and the dairy and the bread that was missing off the shelves. So absolutely. And as you mentioned, that inflation, you know, you talked a little bit about the inflation and fertilizer prices. And and I just wonder, in your crystal ball, do you see some relief from that in the future, or do you think that's going to continue on this trajectory? There's a reason I'm in this role and I don't play in the stock markets. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, you know, I I would think it's not sustainable. Where we're at is not. Something's going to have to give, and, and what causes that or what that point is, I don't know. Um, you know, farmers have been fortunate that we did see um, an increase in our prices uh, this last year, but obviously the way our inputs are tracking, it's it doesn't pencil out going forward. And so we have to be really cautious. And, and that goes into making smarter decisions too and, and utilizing technology and, and advancements and, and trying to be the most efficient that we can be to still produce a crop. So obviously farmers make their decisions on how much nutrients they're going to apply based on what they think the crop's going to use. Um, and they try to use just enough or you know they want to keep the soil healthy. But there's another problem, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, but I think we should probably talk about it a little bit more, and that's nutrient loss. That's nutrients not getting to the crop where they need to be and going somewhere else, for instance, into the watershed or some other place. Can you talk about that? 
the impact of that? How big of a problem is it? And just share a little bit with us. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what really spurred a lot of this conversation several years ago was talking about the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico and the, um, the algal blooms, the hypoxic zone, you know, just the problems there and looking at what was causing that and looking at basically 12 main states in the Mississippi River Basin that were contributing with nitrogen and phosphorus that were making it off target, that was leaving um, fields and urban areas and different settings and making it into our waterways and ultimately to the Gulf. And so um, the EPA has allowed and, and working with these 12 states to come up with currently voluntary programs to address the nutrient loss. So in Illinois, we have what's called the Illinois Nutrient Loss Reduction Strategy. And it's a collaborative effort with your urban, your stormwater, your agriculture, what's called would be considered non-point source um, groups to try and tackle this problem and say, can we figure out what's happening and what can we do to fix that? And we have different metrics and different goals that are out there. And we actually just had released the most recent biennial report uh, for the nutrient loss reduction strategy. And, you know, one of the the big things that we saw not only with this report, but the last report uh, was the amount of flow. So the amount of water that we're seeing. And so in this last report, we saw flow up 25%. And so, you know, not only are we trying to address a problem that we might not already have the answers to, uh, but also now we have a new variable. seeing more intense and frequent Mm -hmm. rainfall events. And I think you alluded to it here, but, you know, we think of this a lot of times as being an agricultural problem. And I I don't know what percentage of it belongs to agriculture, but this is also coming from cities, maybe fertilizer applied to someone's yard or other factors in a, a, a sewer in from the city, correct? It is. And, you know, I'd say one of the biggest differences in how we handle and, and work for solutions is when you're talking with that urban, that stormwater, that runoff, typically you've got those reclamation districts and it's going through a water treatment facility. And so those f- areas have the ability to capture all of that water, treat it, run it through their systems, and then release it. But the difference is when they do that, they can raise their costs to that end consumer when you're buying that water. Um, You know, first of all, farmers don't have the ability to capture all of that water. And second of all, uh, when we talk about practices like cover crops or no-till, that can be a financial change as well and challenge. Uh, We can't change the price of our crop on the back end to help supplement and, and offset those increased prices. You mentioned 25%. I think I missed that part. Was that like nitrogen flow? Could you speak more specifically? Yeah, so that's actually water flow. Just specifically Over the baseline. Um, And so the last report would have looked, and this would have included 2019, which we all can remember that was an extremely wet year uh, for the state of Illinois and for farmers, you know, uh, historic prevent plant acres, um, especially up, like I said, I'm Henry County. Bureau County, I think, was the number one county for prevent plant. And it's right there in um, the lower Rock River watershed. And so the other thing through these strategies and within the states, it's not just looking at the state as a whole. It's breaking it out, especially by watersheds and looking and seeing um, how each watershed is different and each one has different priority and and different concerns. And what's interesting, especially when we think Illinois, it's so diverse north to south. And actually our nitrates, our nitrogen concerns, um, are larger up in the northern part of the state. And our phosphorus concerns are more in the southern part of the state. And the way we lose some of those nutrients are different as well. Typically, we think about phosphorus being lost with the soil. It really binds and attaches uh, pretty hard to that soil particle. And so 
practices like no-till are going to make a bigger impact. Where if we're thinking nitrogen, we need to find something to scavenge that out of the ground uh, before it, it makes its way and leaches into the water source. So a cover crop does a great job. That's so. And what a cover crop is, um, is something that not everyone's aware of either. So the cover crop is basically planting something so you have living material out in that field year-round. You want to see living roots and shoots, we say. And the premise would be you're having that that grass or legume or whatever you're planting growing when the your target cash crop is not. And so it's typically uh, in the fall through that early spring um, when we see, you know, um, barren fields. We don't, you know, it's hard to grow corn and soybeans when it's 30 degrees and snow is falling. Uh, so putting something out there to help ensure that the soil stays in place and any nutrients that might be left over, not just from the application of fertilizer, but because we have such fertile soils in Illinois, natural minerals will occur where we actually see the breakdown of organic matter and old crop residue um, that naturally produces things like nitrogen um, become available and so having uh, you know that cover crop out there to to secure up and, and grab any of that uh, as well. So you started to talk about cover crops there and that's one thing that growers can do to reduce nutrient loss but there's some other tools that they have also right you mentioned no-till what else what I guess let's talk a little bit about the different things that farmers can do and and maybe that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution as you mentioned the northern part of the state is different from the southern part of the state there's different soil types different topographies um, even different crops at times so can we talk about some of the different things that growers do and where the fit is for those practices yeah and you're absolutely right there's no silver bullet uh, the reason cover crops get so much attention is because when we look big picture at what can make the greatest impact as far as the reduced soil erosion nutrient loss it does come to cover crops but that doesn't mean that's a good fit for everyone and it doesn't mean that that is the end-all be-all and so there's edge of field practices so farmers could put in saturated buffers or wet construction wetlands would be an option. Um, we also think about utilizing new technology and precision ag. So being more efficient with our placement and timing. Uh, you know, it's it's great being able to see um, technologies. We know that corn plants today use more of their nitrogen later in the season. So technologies like Y-drops where we can actually be very specific in our placement and place nitrogen very close uh, to the corn plant later in the season uh, with that technology. We also, you know, work with having our soil testing done to know what fertility levels are, to know what the right application is, and not and taking that a step further and applying that at different rates across the field. So we talked about our food plate. And if you think about a, a field, um, that food plate's going to look different across the field. The different segments and portions of where they need, uh, you know, more phosphorus or more potassium uh, is going to change, uh, just like we all have different things that we need more of in our diet. You know, I need to drink more water, and I could probably drink some more milk, too. And so, you know, thinking about how we're all unique and individual, our fields are like that as well. And with those different strategies, there's probably some situations where Obviously, if you would do all the strategies, if you'd no-till and put cover crops and then a, a saturated buffer, you know, something around the edge of the field to, to help trap those nutrients when they, when they go to leave the field and split applications of fertility and, and variable rate when we talk about putting a different amount on a different part of the field. But it's probably not realistic that, that in one operation, and maybe you have seen an example of this, but 
do you know of any examples where, where someone is doing all these things? I think that happens, but it's in a small scale. And that's what the other thing we have to consider is we would ideally, you know, as corn growers and most of the ag community, would love to see something implemented on every acre across the state. And so that's where it has to become not only practical to implement and, and bring in these management changes, but also it has to make financial sense. And so that's something else within corn growers, and we've actually recently partnered with Illinois Soybean on this, is our Precision Conservation Management Program. And that program doesn't really look at the agronomics, so it's not looking at how do these conservation practices change your yield uh, or even soil health, but how do these practices impact your financial bottom line? And so that's been really important. Uh, we now have uh, this program in a, covering about a third of the state, and and defined in what we'd call eco-regions. So we feel very confident that where this program is represents uh, the whole state, even though it's only located in about a third of the state. And so working directly with farmers, going out and using their information, not asking them to make any changes. Uh, so we've got growers that are very traditional. Uh, there's uh, tillage that happens, uh, but we've got growers as well that are long-term 30-year no-till and cover crops and making these changes and being able to then compare and look and say, Okay, how do, how do the dollars and cents play into this? And that, we think, is a really important and, and crucial role, especially as farmers get larger. Um, we need to make sure that these things make sense and that, likewise, that they have the capacity to implement and, and be successful. I think it's interesting. Sustainability, that word gets thrown around a lot. And uh, it can mean different things to different people. It's, it's usually just pretty much a marketing term, I think, I'm, but I'm a little cynical. Yeah. But um, sustainability at the bottom line means that something can be continued and if something doesn't pay it doesn't matter how good it is for the environment it's not sustainable because if a if a farmer goes out of business he's he's not sustained basically absolutely that has to be a component of this and i, I agree with you there's a lot of buzzwords and different terms that are out there and, and you know really i think at the the core of all of this is just continuous improvement. We always want to do better. Um, you know, farmers are the original stewards of the land. Most of us, I said, I'm a fourth generation farmer. These farms have been passed down and, and I want to see my kids come back. And in order for that to happen, we have to make smart decisions. Absolutely. We all know that soil is a finite resource and we're not going to quickly get any more of it, um, especially the topsoil. And so, you know, we need to preserve what we've got and make sure we're making smart decisions. Cool. So you mentioned like wastewater treatment. Obviously, it's heavily regulated by EPA. I was wondering if you could speak to the current status of legislation regarding nutrient loss reduction strategies and maybe any, um, any future plans for legislation as well. Yeah. Um, so like I said, as far as the high-level nutrient loss reduction strategy with the 12 states, uh, currently everything is voluntary, and that's where we'd obviously like to keep it. Um, we know that farmers want to do the right thing, want to be responsible. There are barriers that still exist, um, but currently for, for where we're at, it's voluntarily trying to meet these goals. And so it's it's organizations like Corn, Soy, Farm Bureau. Um, you know, we work with um, conservation groups as well, groups like American Farmland Trust and the Nature Conservancy. So groups that farmers might not always think about pairing well with agriculture have been really good allies for us uh, to help find solutions and bring in um bring in opportunities to make sure things remain voluntary. Um, you know, I think about, I mentioned our PCM program. We've also brought in some private consumer packaged goods uh, companies like PepsiCo uh, to in their regions where they're sourcing corn for their products. Uh, they have a special interest in things like 
um, greenhouse gas emission reductions, carbon sequestration. And so they're actually cost sharing directly with the farmer to implement some of these practices to help them uh, on their side achieve their goals as well. And so it's finding unique opportunities. We know Illinois is uh, not maybe not the most financially stable state. <laughs> and so, you know, thinking about implementing these practices or getting state assistance to do so is challenging. You know, in fact, in 2020, there was $13 million in public-private funds. That's not, that's no state, no federal cost share dollars that were actually invested in these conservation practices within Illinois. So it's amazing what can be done when we, you know, look outside the box and, and try and work together. Illinois is a big egg state. Is that similar in other states, or how does Illinois compare to other states? You know, honestly, in some ways, I, there's a lot of reasons we joke that we'd like to live in Iowa. And, you know, I think this, you know, we look at some of the funding opportunities that are in our neighboring states, and it is frustrating. Um, like you said, agriculture is a huge industry and a huge uh, component for Illinois, and it, it gets lost in translation. Um, you know, many of us have a connection, whether it's through a you know, food manufacturer, the trucking and logistics here, we all can get connected back, but realizing that that's a priority is, is something that's different. And the other part is it's hard too, um, you know, taking and wanting to take some ownership in this. So we, we talked about the wastewater and in Chicago or Springfield or wherever that may be. And okay, they pay their water bill and they're taking care of it. Well, let's look at it at the broad, the whole state and let's all, you know, work together and come together and, and, you know, have some pride in our water quality and what's going on here. And to that point, other states as well, um, for their water, there's a big difference in the recreational look at their water. We talk about Missouri, the Lake of the Ozarks. Um, there's big draws to bring that recreation that brings additional funding to help with all of these resources. And, and in Illinois, most of our water is looked at for the logistics and transportation piece, which is huge when we're talking um, bottom line for farmers and, and the commodities. Um, but how do we make that more appealing and more of interest for people to, to step up and say, hey, we, we want to invest in this? There's definitely incentive, maybe not financial incentives always, but there's definitely incentive for farmers to, uh, they want to do the right thing anyway, as you mentioned, but there's also incentives for them to do that. And and there's some programs that they have. I think it was recently announced a, a program where the federal crop insurance can help out with some nutrient loss strategies. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I said, we're always looking for tools. There's no silver bullet. So what can we do to help farmers implement these practices and overcome the barriers? And I guess before I dive into PACE, I, I bring up, you know, so we talk about what needs to happen, but why exactly aren't we getting there uh, at the level that we need to? And I would say there's a, a few things. One of them would be just the upfront cost. There's variable costs to this. We know that that's going to happen. There's the risk and just the knowledge of it. When we make, it's not just really, you don't think of it as a practice change. You're not just doing one thing. You're not just growing cover crops. It's usually a whole systems change that you're trying to accomplish. And that takes time to be comfortable with. Um, you know, it's like you send your kid off to kindergarten the first year, and next thing you know, you're trying to figure out college applications and FAFSA. I mean, you don't just figure that out in, uh, overnight. It takes a little bit of time. And so um, having some time and, and a place to get resources and talking about finances are um or, uh, extension system in Illinois is bare bones. And so finding good people and good resources to get that, inf uh, that information. And then the equipment, we talked about that. When we're making these changes, it usually equates to an equipment change as well that can be extremely costly. And finally, one of the bigger things that is unique to Illinois, but the Midwest as well, the number of non-operating landowners. So 
we know that farmers that make these practice changes and systems changes it's easier to do on land that they own because they're not having to that cost associated with the rental they're not having to worry about it failing on something that is already hard to make a return on and so how do we get these landowners more excited and engaged and give the farmers more tools and confidence to have those conversations and so one of those tools we're looking at, um, as you mentioned, is called PACE. It's the Post Application Coverage Endorsement. It was approved by RMA in September, but we finally got all the details actually earlier uh, last week. And this program or this crop insurance product is a private product that would be additive uh, to your, your base coverage. And what it's doing is helping offset some of your risk for split application of nitrogen. So we know that one of the biggest concerns uh, to split applying your nitrogen, so that's not putting it all on in the fall or all early in the spring, but spreading it out when the, the plant is growing, is the fear of not being able to get it on. We talked about we're seeing more rainfall, more intense rainfall, and so there's risk and there's concern over, well, if I have an opportunity today, should I take it all today? Or do I risk it and try and do some later uh, and maybe see some more efficiency? And so this product is basically saying, if you're willing to commit to doing a percentage of your nitrogen application in season, uh, really between that V3 and V10 timeframe, so when the corn plant's actively growing and, and taking up and using that, um, will help cover that risk. And so a farmer can choose what that coverage level and percentage is. And then if an event happens, so, and this would be um, thinking like prevent plant, you're kind of ensuring the event from happening. So if, you know, there is this major rainstorm or, or whatever that happens that stops you from getting that application on, then you're, you're covered on any loss there. And the benefit, I don't know if we really spelled it out for someone who's not a farmer, the benefit to putting on part of the nutrients up front, which has been kind of the past traditional practice, and taking part of it and putting on in the season is maybe you can use a little bit less and you can, you know, figure that you're going to, if you put it all up front, you have to put on enough to account for what you're going to lose. And then if you put it on as the plant needs it, you can maybe use a little bit less and you can kind of monitor the growing season and make some decisions based on what happens in the field and be more efficient with your yeah, absolutely. nutrient application. Absolutely. It's all about trying to get that nutrient use efficiency number as low as you possibly can on, on your farm. And again, that's going to be different for every farmer. And, um, you know, we work with farmers that are putting their nitrogen on four and five different times throughout the year. And it's just that spoon feeding it as they go. And um, that they'll tell you that's a major management change. It's a big investment. Um, but for them, it, it makes sense and it works and they're able to be very successful with that. Well, you mentioned equipment also and making equipment changes. And I don't know, but probably most people that aren't involved in farming would be shocked at the amount of cost there is in equipment. I mean, it, probably most farmers, I would say, I, I haven't seen the actual numbers, but have multiple million dollars worth of equipment sitting on their farm, probably, when you figure a tractor or two and a combine and a planner. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, so a side hustle my husband and I have is actually we sell some of this equipment to other farmers <laughs> to help nice. them, um, you know, do better and be more efficient with the equipment that they already have. And, I mean, it's not out of line to be spending seventy dollars to $90,000 just to upgrade something you already have in hopes that you see a return on it. Um, you know, you're, you're basically, you know, taking a leap of faith and saying, hey, the science makes sense. I know this is good for the environment. You know, let's 
let's make this investment. And a lot of times it's not only convincing yourself, but then you got to convince your lender, your banker too. You know, you've got to be able to get them on board that these practices are going to make sense and long-term uh, show you a return. And some of that return might not be necessarily on your balance sheet, but some of those, um, just that risk mitigation, we know that long-term no-till and cover crops uh, will actually help improve water fil infiltration, reduce your ponding and standing water. And so, you know, you're going to see some benefits that way uh, if you're, you know, make this transition and, and are committed to it. So are you optimistic about the future of nutrient management? And then I guess also to add on to that, like how do you view the future of ag with regards to nutrient management? Yeah, I think there's a ton of opportunity out there and I am really excited. Um, I think that it takes us, you know, in agriculture, the big thing is we've talked about this. Farmers typically are multi-generational. This is very this is a very intimate conversation to have with them. And one of the things is we need to be willing to say, okay, we are trying, but we know that things aren't perfect. And we need to be open to having that conversation, that dialogue with different groups and say, how can we work together to overcome the barriers that still exist? I think that's something that needs to happen if we truly want to be successful. It's not just, you know, being scared um, and, and being cautious, overly cautious over uh, pointing that blame or looking at that blame game and it's we're, we take ownership and let's figure this out and make this work and between um, efficiencies with the genetic increases or genetic improvements that we see with our crops to the equipment side and technology is just fascinating I mean many of you probably saw John Deere's autonomous tractor that they're that they've rolled out with uh, to be competitive and um, there's a crazy 1100 horsepower machine in the ukraine if you haven't youtube that you should <laughs> it's a combine yeah, tractor that. sprayer i mean it is insane and so <laughs> um you know there's so many things out there and and that's something too for those that aren't in ag there's a big opportunity if you like to problem solve i mean ag's not running out of problems anytime soon and so it, it's taking these um you know People that are into coding and engineering and and figuring out how to make some of this work and make things better uh, that is going to make a, a help get us across the finish line on, on some of these goals. So I am, uh, um, you know, optimistic that we're going to get there. It's going to take time. And it, like I said, it's going to take providing and, and getting some resources uh, in those areas that we still need and, and overcoming the barriers. Yeah, that's a great point that you make about the need for different expertises. So programmers, engineers, I mean, pretty much any interest you have, if you also have an interest in agriculture, you could probably marry those two together. It's something that Preston and I have talked about on the podcast with several of our guests. You know, it comes up pretty often that there's a wide range of backgrounds. You're a fourth generation farmer. We talk to people who, who are first generation farmers or weren't involved in agriculture at all growing up and they went to college and they found out that that's how they could make an impact by being in agriculture. And you know, there's all, there's opportunity for really anyone. It's, it's a very welcoming uh, industry. It is. And you know, people are always going to have to eat. And like I said, we're not going to run out of problems anytime soon. And so if you're really looking for an industry to come in and, you know, bring in some fresh ideas, new ideas, it's going to take out of the box thinking, uh, you know, not only to, to achieve the goals of nutrient loss reduction, but to be and continue to be the most, um, you know, high quality product and, and commodity across the world in what we do. You know, I think about too, 
for the opportunity for farmers as well, and something we haven't really talked about, we've talked about the environmental impacts of implementing no-till and cover crops, but some of the financial opportunities too around some of these ecosystem service markets, uh, carbon markets, water quality is uh, not far behind, and you know helping farmers have the resources and the tools to be successful when those markets do start to mature and become more of a viable option is important as well. Um, and so the carbon market side would be basically we know that um, implementing no-till and cover crops and, and having that there is going to pull in and sequester that carbon down into the ground. And so we're not uh, contributing to the climate change uh, situation. And so then when you are able to sequester that carbon, some companies are trying to offset their own emissions. And so they gives the farmer an opportunity to sell those credits. And that's a, a very new market uh, in its infancy um, and something that we're working on within our PCM program to start evaluating and looking at uh, what what would an ideal market look like? How should that be structured? And, and what does that mean? So I think there's new opportunities there as well. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see where that goes in the future. It's obviously there's some some, some things starting up, and but I, I think down the road it might look very different than what it does today, and so it'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if some of the farmer listeners want to learn more, they like what they hear. Is there a place they can go to get access to some of the stuff you've been talking about here today? Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities and places to go. Uh, you know, ilcorn.org, our Illinois corn website, is a great starting point. Uh, the Precision Conservation. Uh, .org would be our PCM program if you're interested in that or seeing if it's available in your county or wanting to see some of the public data that we put together with that. And then also the Illinois Sustainable Ag Partnership in Illinois is a wealth of information, and that's at ilsustainableag.org. And actually, if you're more interested, especially in the carbon markets, this summer there was a three-part webinar series sponsored by ISAP that has a wealth of information not only on the broad overview of how carbon markets work, but also talking with some of the companies that are currently offering those markets um, and programs and and getting some more information there. So um, I would say those are three really good starting points. Um, Obviously, your social media channels and listening more to this podcast. (laughs) Thank you for the plug. (laughs) Well, we appreciate your participation in the podcast. I think it was great. Yeah, very interesting. Thanks for your time, Megan. I appreciate you inviting me on. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.